Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. This is the 2020 post-retreat episode of the podcast. Uh, and for me, I'm just I'm just in search of information because this was the year I wasn't able to go. Even my plans to attend just for an hour to present a workshop were uh, thrown into the fire at the last minute when our featured speaker received notice that he'd been exposed to COVID. John Lynch had to go home. Possibly exposed. Possibly exposed. Allegedly exposed. Who knows? <laughs> he had been around somebody who had been exposed, I think is how it yeah, uh, how he received right. the news. Yeah, so I mean, things changed fast, and of course, John was super disappointed. Oh yeah, guys were bummed, and then Dr. Tom Mocha had to go because he'd been driving him around, you know. Mm-hmm. So he was gone. So there's a lot of changes. Um, but KK Ray didn't make it. KK Ray, yeah. So I mean, it was it. So so so. So, from what I understand, then, the weekend was a total disaster and a loss and a waste of yes, time. Yes, because it's all about the personalities. And when you start losing the personalities and all you've got left is Aaron and Andy, <laughs> man, <laughs> that's not true. Andy's got enough personality for everybody. Uh, so, no, it was... Okay, so I'll start with how odd it was. Mm-hmm. Here we are inside wearing our masks, mm-hmm. spreading out the chairs, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it felt weird. Yeah. So that when all these changes happened, yeah. and all this happened like 50 minutes before go time. Right, yeah. Uh, it didn't feel, I, I feel like I was watching the guys respond to it, and everyone was kind of like, well, everything else is weird. Let's do this thing. <laughs> and you just watched a bunch of guys Go, all right, we'll engage whatever's about to happen. Yeah. And I mean, I wish I had some guys in here. I don't know what any, what it meant to anybody else. I know I did my walks and my work and... The feedback I got was that guys, you know, God showed up and guys, it showed up in conversations, mm-hmm. uh, in sharing, in, uh, yeah, in, and God gave you guys fantastic weather, didn't he? It was amazing. Yeah. It was so pleasant. Yeah, yeah. Best weather we've ever had out there in Eva, Tennessee for our fall retreat. And besides meals, I mean, on Saturday we had two hours of free time. Guys mm-hmm. were working hard. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and it was so cool to watch. Uh I was happy that Andy Gullihorn finally got to attend a national retreat. I was just going to say, OG, I mean, he's been around. I don't know what the story with you when you guys first hooked up. He started the second uh, ever Samson group. In Nashville. In Nashville, yeah. Yeah. So having him there and the concert, which, by the way, if you guys come to the virtual retreat, we're going to have that concert has been filmed, Mm -hmm. and it was... I think a highlight for most of us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's a highlight for everybody, but the best part for many of us. Really, it was so good. Uh, uh, yeah, I I don't do great with new music. Mm-hmm. Here's my confession: We'll edit this out. We won't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. I I have had to sit through a lot of songwriters' showcases in right. my life. Right, right, and. 
a person with a guitar playing for more than 20 or 30 minutes, mm-hmm. usually I'm I'm out. Yeah, yeah. It, it starts to get painful. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, Andy played for just over an hour, maybe an hour and 10 minutes. Yeah. I was so ready for that to keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was amazing. Yeah. So anyways, and I, I think music's such an amazing gift of God to connect these emotions to these thoughts, to our yeah. hearts, to our souls. Like, it's just, I'll, I'll take that any day. So anyways, it was, I was just so, I was really just proud of the guys. And obviously a big political weekend where people could have got derailed, talking, making crass comments. Oh, I or heard something about, or, what, was there a, like an election of some kind that happened? <laughs> Is it over yet? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, these, these are things I really just felt proud of guys being like, we're here for a reason. We're going to do this. Right. Here we go. Yeah. And we did have two safe words. If anybody slipped, you heard about safe words. No, right? I did not hear about uh, the safe yeah, words. Because we were talking about on the first night, just kind of establishing, let's not talk about, I don't want to be wearing these masks, COVID's stupid, COVID's yeah. a, a hoax, whatever. We yeah. said, like, none of that talk, and there are better things to talk about than Trump's an idiot or Biden's a moron. Like, those aren't the conversations. We said, possibly, you've been talking about that all the time, so uh-huh. you might slip. Yeah. So we need our guys around us to have some kind of safe word that says, <laughs> hey, let's back this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first one that got thrown out was, oh, Canada. Okay. So that just seemed appropriate if things got too American, <laughs> you know, politically, <laughs> that you just shout out, oh, Canada. And then somebody else suggested, I have to poop. Okay. Didn't know where we went from strange Canadian politics to seventh grade, but... <laughs> Every once in a while throughout the weekend, I'd be walking across somewhere and just hear, I have to poop. I'm like, yep, somebody was starting to go a direction they didn't need to go. Uh, So, yeah. Juvenile but effective. You know what? Juvenile's often very effective. Yeah. A wet willy will stop a great number of uh, things. So, anyways, great job with the guys. So, we're having... If you were at the retreat, and, and men, I am sorry, I kept forgetting every session I was supposed to say this, and I forgot. If you don't know, if you were there, you get the virtual retreat for free, right. which is at this point almost entirely new content. <laughs> so you are getting a completely, a, a whole second retreat. That's right. You'll still get to hear John Lynch from the comfort of his home in Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, I'll do a workshop. KK is going to be KK is going to be live. Yeah. Hey, I'll get to do my workshop. You'll get to do your workshop. Yeah. So, yeah, there's pretty much and so you can repeat Andy's. Uh, the only thing that went according to schedule was there was a concert by Andy. And there <laughs> and was a workshop, a workshop by, by Andy. Yeah. So those will still be there. Yeah. Um so yeah, so that's coming up, but a lot of people have been you know, waiting, Nate. I feel like say it's virtual. They feel like there's no rush. There's yeah. no line. Yeah, yeah. So they've been waiting, which doesn't make it easy for the tech team right. to put this together for Pete's sake. Yeah, we need you to go register for the Dagon thing. Register for the Dagon thing. It's no. It it starts on a Friday evening. It's a couple hours on Friday evening, November the twentieth, and then continues uh, through the day. I think from eight a.m. or nine a.m. to to uh, five on Saturday, the 21st. How are we going to pull off that amount of content? And that's, I probably won't be doing a workshop. 
Why we, is that? We can't fit that much content into that time period. Can oh, we? we sure can. Absolutely. Because we're not sending guys out on a ton of walks. It's going to work. All right. Okay. So, uh, how do they get to this? They go to samsonsociety.com. Go, go to samsonsociety.com and look for the handy dandy new banner that uh, should be up by the time this, this uh, episode posts. And that'll, that'll get you there. So click on the banner. Yeah. It will transport you. Yeah. If you're already a Samson Society member and you get the, you receive the noble briefing, that monthly uh, letter that comes from Dr. Tom Mocha, you're going to get like a, he has this solemn pledge. I'm only going to mail once a month. Uh, we've persuaded him to break that pledge this month, and you will get an extra mailer reminding you of that. And by the way, that matching gift uh, uh, opportunity also for Samson House. Okay. So get signed up. Uh, we want to see you there, and yeah. we will see you because we're going to be live. We're going to be Where live. Are we doing you and this I. from? Are we going to do it from in here or hang out your yeah, house? We, yeah, or? we can do it from in here. I mean, I have good internet at my house. All right. Might be more comfortable. All right. I'm happy here. to do it at your house. All right. We'll talk about it. This will be fun. Yeah. Too bad we can't do it from a pub. The whole thing from a pub. That would be cool. Can we not? I don't know. Okay. All right. We're going to figure it out. These things will <laughs> we'll loosen up by the end of the, <laughs> end of the day. <laughs> you ever see that show, Drunk History? Yes. <laughs> I just recently, <laughs> it just came onto Hulu or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't actually know they brought historians on. I've heard about it for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know they actually got these poor people incredibly drunk where they're laying on the floor trying to tell their history. Yeah, yeah. It's really sad and amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, enough drunk history. We've got a guest. We've got a good guest. Yes. Stick with us. We'll be back in a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Aaron, our guest today 
hails from probably the most famous uh, family in the American church history, recent American church history. Oh, this isn't going to end well, is it? I, I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling... His, his full name, I didn't know this until recently, his full name is William Graham Tullian Tavigian. Goes by Tullian, but he is the grandson of none other than Billy Graham. So, uh, and I am certain that growing up in the crucible of all that uh, attention and all those expectations and all that much, all that accomplishment within that rarefied Christian world, I'm sure that it had no effect at all. No, it's just, it probably up, made it easier. Upon his, uh, must have, upon his spiritual development. Uh, Tullian, thank you for joining us. It is good to be with you guys. Thank you for having me. How how did that introduction even feel to you? I'm just curious as you're sitting there like, well, here we go. Yeah. Well, tell me what was going <laughs> through your mind with that. Well, interestingly, I've never heard anybody introduce me by mentioning my grandfather's name ever. This is a person. <laughs> <laughs> So I was a bit taken aback. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. Obviously. Um, I mean, listen, I was gifted by God an amazing family that I am super proud of. Yeah. I was gifted by God an amazing heritage that I am incredibly grateful for. And every time I'm asked that question, and I've been asked that question a lot, my answer is and has always been the same. And that is, number one, I didn't know any different. Yeah. So I had nothing to compare it to. But also, um, it was actually quite normal, much more normal than I think people would expect. Uh, and the reason for that is because my grandparents were so normal. They were so down to earth. They yeah. were so humble and enjoyable to be around. I didn't realize that I was part of an important family for the first, you know, many years of my life because my grandparents never carried themselves as being more important than anybody else. So, you know, uh, obviously as I got older and I would see my grandfather on television and I would see him on magazine covers and we would be around him. We were actually around my grandparents a lot growing up. Um, and you know, I mean, as I get older and I got older and became more aware, I became, uh, much more conscious of the fact that, uh, I was part of a really important family. I didn't ask to be in this family. I didn't deserve to be put in this family. Uh, but God put me there and God gave me this family. And I was always and continue to be incredibly grateful for it. In fact, when people ask me about the, uh, you know, what was it like growing up? I'm sure the expectations were humongous and the pressure that was on you to be a certain way or to become something was very heavy. And to be totally honest with you, I don't remember ever feeling like that. Wow. Ever. And that's just, I think, a remarkable testimony to God's grace, his protective grace. But I also think that has a lot to do with who my grandparents were and the way they raised my mom, their oldest daughter, mm -hmm. uh, and the way that me and my six siblings were raised by my mom and dad. Um, you know, I, I just, I never, now I, I will say this, that I grew up going to Christian schools 
and, you know, being involved in church, uh, youth groups, Sunday school, whatnot. And there were expectations put on me, spoken or unspoken, that I felt by my, some of my teachers or some of my youth group leaders or Sunday school teachers. Uh, I think there was this expectation that I would be a certain way or maybe that I wouldn't be a certain way <laughs> because of the family that I was in. Um, but I never felt that pressure from inside my home, ever, not once. I never felt like I had to behave because we were representing my grandfather or his, or, you know, my family. Never. I never felt that pressure, um, to be that way. And therefore I never felt like I was operating under some long shadow. Um, you know, I was the, I was a massive prodigal. I dropped out of high school at 16 and got kicked out of my house at 16. And oftentimes when I tell that story, people will say, well, how did your grandparents handle that? I mean, did they come down on you? Did they, I just say, no, I never felt any condemnation or judgment from my grandparents ever about anything. I felt unconditional love all the time. So tell, tell me, tell me they had a lot more practice with people, but you were 16 and kicked out of the house. How did that feel to you? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a young age to be out on your own. What, what was that about? What happened there? Well, to be honest with you, it felt quite liberating. Hey, yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm like, I'm 16 years old. I live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I don't have, I no longer have teachers breathing down my neck and parents looking over my shoulder. I am now free to do whatever the hell I want to do. So at 16, I felt like I had been paroled. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> for, for how, how long did that feeling last? I wonder. Yes. Well, that feeling came to an end rather quickly, uh, because, <laughs> you know, as they say, oftentimes sin promises what it cannot pay. And the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, but when that season comes to an end, you're left with a gaping hole in your soul that only God is big enough to fill. And that season came to an end for me when I was 21 years old. Um, and it wasn't one particular thing or one particular event or uh, anything like that. It was just this culminating sense of there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing. There's got to be more to who I am than what this world keeps telling me. And what precipitated my being kicked out of the house was I'm the middle of seven kids. And even though I am uh, located in the middle, three older, three younger, the older ones were pretty much out of the house by the time I entered uh, eighth grade, maybe ninth grade. So I really, for the for some of those formative years of my life, I was really the oldest child in the home. Um, and I just, man, I I have never in my life uh, encountered a rule that I did not want to break ever. I mean, I was just kind of, uh, and it's not that I wanted to be that way. Uh, I'm very much cut out of the same cloth as my mother. Uh, her mother, my grandmother, used to say about my mother when she was young that she never met a girl who tried so hard to be so good and was so bad at it as my mother. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, uh, and my mom, of course, laughs about that and says she was absolutely correct in her assessment. But, uh, you know, I was kind of the same way. Um, and for whatever reason, you know, it wasn't like I was 
the flavor of Christianity that was expressed in my home growing up was very warm. It was very hospitable. It was very gracious. It was um, fun-loving. Uh, I didn't grow up in this legalistic, oppressive uh, Christian environment at all. Uh, my parents were really, really good at teaching us to take God seriously, but also teaching us to never, ever take ourselves too seriously. So there was a ton of laughter and sarcasm in our home growing up. I have nothing but the best memories of my growing up years with my large family, my siblings, my mom, my dad. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, I just, everything outside of Christianity looked so much more fun than everything that I was exposed to inside the bubble of Christianity. Oh, um, yeah. And I was just like, man, I mean, I just, I, there was a part of me that felt like, God, if I'm, if I'm really serious about God, then he's just going to force me, he's going to force all of the fun that I want to have out of my life. And I'm not ready for that to happen. So my mindset was, I'm going to do what I want to do and live how I want to live and experience what I want to experience. And I know that at some point I'll outgrow that. And when I finally do outgrow that, um, you know, I'll get serious with God and grow up. I mean, that was kind of my, you know, that was the way I was going to, and I, I remember being conscious of that. Like, I, it's not that I don't believe in God. It's not that I don't believe that Jesus actually died on the cross for my sins. I, I never had any intellectual issues with the Christian faith. Uh, it was more functional for me. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And, I would get serious with God later when I had exhausted all of my resources to have fun. I mean, that was that was about as basic as I can remember. And so, of course, my parents, I began living that way inside the home and was just incredibly rebellious and disobedient um, and belligerent and all of those things. And so my dad, who was probably the most gracious person who has ever walked the face of this earth and was one of my best friends to the day that he died. Um, he just, you know, he said, listen, we love you. And there is nothing you could ever do that would cause us to unlove you. Uh, but we have other kids we have to be mindful of in our home. And if you're going to continue living this way, you just can't live this way under our roof. And so they told me I had to leave. And like I said, initially, I was thrilled about that. I'm like, great. I didn't know where I was going to live, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew that I was now free to pursue whatever I wanted to pursue and to do whatever I wanted to do. So what happened at age 21? You know, like I said, it wasn't this, it wasn't one thing. It, it was just sort of this culminating sense of, gosh, man, I've done, I, at that point, I felt like I had done everything the world had told me to do to find pleasure, satisfaction, contentment. I had made some money. I had started a business. I, um, you know, I mean, I had no one telling me what to do. I was living on my own, uh, South Florida, you know, as you know, Nate, cause you lived there for a long time, uh, South Florida, if you want it to be like Sodom and Gomorrah, it yeah. is like Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was just way too enticing for me. So I felt like, you know, I could do what I want to do. No one could tell me to stop. I had the resources to, you know, sort of fund my lifestyle. And it just really got old, man. And, I, you know, I credit my parents with laying such a good, gracious foundation for me growing up that 
I always knew where home was. And I always knew that one day I would end up back there. Um, I just wasn't ready to go back until I was 21. And then I realized, you know, it was very much uh, very, very uh, a typical prodigal son story. Went off into the far country. My parents let me go. I did what I wanted to do. I had my fun. I had my fill. That got old. I woke up one day in a pigsty and said, this is not all that it's cracked up to be. Uh, God brought me to my senses and I went home. And my homecoming was a massive celebration. When I say homecoming, I don't mean I moved back in with my parents. I mean, mm-hmm. I, saw I, I, I came back into the fold. And they had been praying for that. And their friends had been praying for that. And ex- extended family members had been praying for that um, you know, for years and years and years. And so for me, the prodigal to come home was just uh, a, uh, an occasion for massive celebration. So the, uh, so the great news, the great news of your story is you got all of that done by 21 so that you could just be a useful and productive member of the kingdom from that point on. That's which the, I have been, yes, which I have been flawlessly since that time. <laughs> that's, that's what I want people to, to hear and be encouraged. <laughs> We can end. We can end the podcast now. I after twenty one, I lived happily ever after. I don't even remember sinning again after that. To be honest with you, beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> oh, oh man! And isn't it such a revelation as we start to grow up and uh, begin to shed some of those early personas to start to get hints of how jacked up we really are in ways we didn't understand? Was that your experience? Yes. And to be honest with you guys, I, you know, God, basically the hound of heaven tracking me down, magnificently defeating me and dragging me home, Mm -hmm. uh, was at least for the first six to eight months, I was so captured and so captivated and so deeply moved by God's amazing grace, because I knew how undeserving and bad I was. Mm-hmm. And I did not deserve God's attention in coming after me and bringing me back. I didn't deserve it. And so I can just remember sitting in church during those early months, and anytime the word grace was said from the pulpit, or we sang a song that had anything to do with Christ's substitutionary work on my behalf, or anything that had to do with God's mercy or grace, I would literally break down in tears and begin sobbing. I'm not just talking about one tear coming down the side of my right eye. I mean, I would break down uncontrollably in church. Um, If I would hear someone give their testimony about God's grace, I would just break down. I mean, I was, my heart was so softened by God's unconditional love. But then... The same thing happened to me that happens to so many grateful, young, impressionable converts. They become Christianized. And what happened in that regard for me was the longer I was around Christian people and the more I, the more invested I became in the Christian community, uh, the more I was in, convinced that It took God's blood, sweat, and tears to get us in, but now it requires our blood, sweat, and tears to keep us in. Oh, you you foolish Galatian. Yeah. Yes, 
that was it. And while it was, it was almost like, um, in terms of priority, uh, God's work for me was number one. But now on this side of coming home, uh, my work for God became the primary priority. Oh, and so, so basically, so, and, so the journey from becoming the younger brother to the elder brother in the prodigal story. Yes, and that, that's exactly right. And I think that happens to most people. And I hate to say it, but I think it is the fault of the Christian community uh, that takes us on that journey from younger brother gratitude uh, to sort of elder brother self-righteousness. And so, um, you know, I, I became at that point, you know, not long after that, um, I, I went to college. Um, I got married, uh, to the girl that I had been dating for two years. Uh, we met when we were about as pagan as pagan can be. Uh, and when I came home, she, she did not grow up in a Christian home, but she came to faith, uh, at that time. And six months later, we were engaged. I just thought, well, this is the next step in our relationship. You know, we were only 21 years old, but I felt like, you know, we were basically living together up until that point. And, um, not, I mean, she was technically living at home with her parents, but I mean, I had my own place and she was basically living with me. And so I'm like, okay, well, the next step is to get engaged and get married, which we did. I started college, uh, got married at 21, started college at 22, had our first child at 22, um, after college, went to seminary, uh, and, you know, I was preparing for a life in ministry, but all along the way, man, I, I was, um, I was absorbing what the Christian community was teaching, which is primarily that the Christian life is a life of increasingly getting better. And what that meant was that we would, it was almost like, even though no one said this to me, it was almost implied that we needed Jesus's, we needed the work of Jesus, or we needed Jesus a lot at the beginning of our Christian life. But as we grow, we grow away from our need for Jesus. We grow, we grow away from our desperation. You know, it's kind of like Christian growth was portrayed to me as if um, we become uh, stronger and stronger and more and more competent every day. Yeah, it's, uh, but it's, and, even, it's even worse than that, though, because you lose your desperation for God, but God evidently gains desperation for you, which is why we have phrases like, you might be the only Jesus anybody ever meets. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, that's that's that God's, God's right. super desperate for us. As we right, lose desperation right. for him, and that, I mean that's an important part of the puzzle, right? And actually buying it is, it is an important yeah. buying this bullshit. It, it is, and I'm telling you, man, I have I have said you know a lot in the last few years, especially um, that my I've finally gotten to a point where I feel really great saying my life does not look like Jesus. My life looks like someone who desperately needs Jesus, and I think to be honest with you. Christian growth, however one wants to define it, is not I'm getting stronger and stronger and more and more competent every day. Rather, it is I'm becoming increasingly aware of how weak and incompetent I am and how strong and competent Jesus is and continues to be for me. And 
So, you know, you look at Philippians chapter three, for instance, Paul starts really high, you know, I was, uh, uh, you know, as he gives us his very impressive spiritual resume, he says, you know, I mean, I'm, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised in the eighth day, of the eighth day, the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he had a very impressive spiritual resume and growth for Paul was not, I'm starting low and going high growth for Paul was I'm starting high and going low. And to the point where, you know, as we know, at the end of his life, he's saying things like, I'm the worst guy that I know. And that was not conveyed to me uh, in those early years. Even through college and seminary, that was not conveyed to me. And so in that sense, I think the Christian community uh, sort of accelerated my journey from younger brother to elder brother. And uh, Christianity became very religious to me. Even though I would have never said God's love is conditional, I functioned as if it was, and I preached as if it was, and I wrote as if it was conditional. And so, um, you know, I just, I think that, uh, and Martin Luther described the difference between a theology of the cross and a theology of glory, a theology of glory is all about us. It's about our glory. It's about our climb. It's do more, try harder, get better, climb higher. Um, you know, it's about our ascent to God, uh, whereas a theology of the cross is all about Jesus's performance for us, not ours for him. His obedience for us, not ours for him. And I just, you know, I just think for the most part, the Christian community in general, there are great exceptions to this, but in general, so uh, have so absorbed and now embody a theology of glory that for most people, the Christian faith, the, the focus of the Christian faith is the life of the Christian. And it's all about what we do. And it's all about how we perform. And it's all about uh, what we choose not to do. I mean, it's all about me. It's, 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 it's what I call spiritualized navel-gazing. I mean, it's, it's narcissism at its best. We've just spiritualized it, uh, and now it's about me and m- me having my devotions and me doing this and me doing that. And so in, within the framework of a theology of glory, all about me, my strength, my performance, whatever, uh, there's no room for Christian failure and Christian weakness. The idea that as a Christian, your greatest failure may be in front of you is just, there's no place for that kind of thinking inside most modern Christianity. Um, yeah. So uh, I had a massive, you know, wake up call later on in life when it came to that. Sure. I'm hearing the expectations that you had of yourself and those expectations that kind of implicitly, even if not explicitly are placed upon new converts. Um, it seems to me though, now you, uh, I'm resonating with your story in this regard, because I also went into ministry. Uh, Aaron's also been in ministry. I really felt uh, that I was kind of offered this deal when I when I got into ministry that uh, I was invited to get up on the pedestal and demonstrate how this work could be done, um, and uh, you know, and I would get lots of attention, and people would listen to me, and I would have. Uh, their respect, and I would have some status, and I'd be earning all kinds of credits in heaven, I guess, uh, on, on, as long as I could maintain um, a performance. But 
I couldn't get down from that pedestal. I couldn't fall and I couldn't jump. Oh. Uh, you wound up in public ministry. How old were you when you started in ministry? And uh, and where did ministry take you? I mean, you you wound up in a pretty daggone visible position, didn't you? Yes, very much so. Um, I started, I mean, really, when I went to college, I went to a small Christian university in Columbia, South Carolina, Columbia International University, majored in philosophy, but I was married at the time and had a baby, and so I needed to work. And there was a local church in town, a non-denominational church with Presbyterian roots, um, that asked if I would be willing to be their part-time youth pastor. So uh, it gave me some experience, plus I, I was able to help me pay the bills. So I did that. And then when I finished college, I went to seminary, to Reform Theological Seminary, and there was a, a church that had just recently started uh, in the Orlando area near the seminary. And the pastor approached me and asked if I would consider being the youth pastor there. And again, at that point, I had two children and needed to pay some bills. And so I needed a job in addition to going to school full time. And so I took that position. Um, and so I did ministry all through college and all through graduate school. And then when I finished seminary, I took a position as a pastor to young adults, which in the church that I served was everybody in their 20s and 30s at a large Presbyterian church in Knoxville, Tennessee, Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church. Oh. And I was there for two years. Yeah, that was that was where I was, right out of seminary. The pastor there, John Wood, is a dear friend of mine, and um, and he, I, I had a couple of different uh, job offers coming out of seminary, and I chose Cedar Springs because I love John so much. And so... Uh, moved there, had a daughter that was born there um, right out of seminary, and was there for two years before I was called back home to South Florida to plant a church in 2003. So I planted a church in 2003. I moved my family back to Fort Lauderdale area, uh, Coconut Creek to be specific, mm -hmm. um, in 2003, and started a church, and that church grew uh, by South Florida standards, it grew. You know, if you plant a church in Dallas, Texas, you'll have 5,000 people within a year. That's not the way it is in, uh, you know, the dry spiritual ground of South Florida. Sure. Um, South Florida is very much a mission field, but we grew. I mean, by the time we were a year old, uh, we had probably 450, 500 people, which was explosive growth for us at sure. that point. Um, and so we really grew, and by the time that church was about five years old. Uh, uh, we had just over 800 people in church, and that's when Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, which was about 20 minutes southeast of where our church was, approached me and asked if I would consider becoming the pastor of their church. Their founding pastor, D. James Kennedy, had passed away in 2008 mm -hmm. uh, or 2007, I think December of 2007 or something like that. Um, and so they were in the unique position of looking for a pastor for the first time. And so they approached me and I said, I'm honored, I'm humbled, but I'm not interested. They came back. I said the same thing. They came back a third time. And just to get them off my back, I had no interest in taking this church. Um, but so just to get them off my back, I said, listen, the only way that I would ever consider doing this is if this was a church merger, because I'm not leaving the church I planted to go down the street to pastor this church. So if you guys are interested in taking me, you have to take my whole church. Well, 
to make a very long story short, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. um, and so in uh, March of 2009, those two churches became one new church. And at that point, my life took off. Now, I had, I had before I went to Coral Ridge, I had written two books. Um, and, uh, was, you know, um, sort of professionally speaking, um, you know, I was sort of rising through the ranks, you know, I was getting invited to speak at the conferences and, you know, the various places and being asked to contribute articles to the various periodicals that are well-known in Christian circles and, um, and all of that stuff. So I didn't feel like I needed Coral Ridge to boost my, you know, Mm -hmm. professional status. Uh, it was really a call from God, but once I ended up there, it, things just really took off. I mean, my visibility uh, skyrocketed, and I was now at the helm of one of America's most famous churches, and all eyes were on me. And I was at that point writing a book a year, and I started a, a ministry called Liberate, which became it was an annual conference, but it became much more than that. Um, I was. Uh, traveling around the country, uh, you know, speaking at churches, conferences, universities, seminaries, you name it. Um, I was, uh, my, my sermons were aired every week around the world on television. They were aired every day on the radio. Um, so I'm, I'm curious because with that's some, that's some heady stuff. And I'm picturing the kid that came into it with such gratitude from the pigsty. Mm -hmm. And then yep. all of a sudden finds, uh, he goes out in the field to be the elder brother and reaps such a magnificent crop. Mm-hmm. And then you hit a point in your life where you are forced back to a place of gratitude for the grace. Yes. And how was yes. it the second time, now that you cycle back from, from all of that, to a place where you rediscover the exact same gratitude that you had early on. Ironic how much work it takes for us to get as smart as we were when mm-hmm. we were young and ignorant. But how, <laughs> what, what was the sticking difference of grace the second time around? Man, that is a great question. Well, for anybody who's listening that doesn't know... Uh, and I'm very, very uncomfortably transparent about my story. But in 2015, my world came crashing down. Um, my first marriage ended in divorce in part because I was unfaithful to my first wife. And because I was a public person, the story became very public and almost overnight. Um, you know, of course, my, uh, my work, my most embarrassing moment was being broadcast around the world, not just, you know, uh, in and through the various Christian uh, media outlets, but because of who my family was and because I was a visible person. I mean, it was reported in all of the, all, all of the, you know, national, uh, you know, outlets. And so, you know, everything from the National Enquirer to People Magazine to USAID, everything. So I was, outed, so to speak. And, um, and at first I was just, I was in shock, of course, because life as I knew it came to a screeching halt. And I was, uh, I I was watching everything fall apart. And initially I didn't think there was anything I could do about it. 
I was incredibly angry. Um, I, I felt like I was not the only one who sinned in this equation, and yet my sin is the only sin that's being publicly punished. So I was pissed off. I was angry. I was feeling sorry for myself. I was rationalizing and justifying what I had done. Um, I was feigning repentance enough to get the people around me believing that I was really sorry. But if you scratch just underneath the surface of it, I was just pissed. And I was doing everything I could to get my old life back. And so for the first six months or so, Um, I was manipulating the narrative. I was telling half truths. I was being very, very strategic in what I said to who and all of that stuff. And I was doing everything I could to try and salvage what I had lost professionally. Let's pause on that because I feel like there's an awful lot of public leaders that something happens in their life, some moral failure or whatever people want to call it. And everybody suspects that they are feeling and doing exactly what you just admitted to doing. And I don't want to move past that well, quickly because that's a huge confession that, that is, I think. It's also the story of almost every addict I know. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's not just yeah, the right. people in yeah. the spotlight. <laughs> it's my story, too. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. But, but I, think, I think there is confusion. I'm, you are speaking from a position that has caused a lot of people confusion when Hmm. those that are in the public spotlight struggle in the exact same ways that everybody else struggles, but all of a sudden it's a whole different thing. And then you see this, you're watching the internal turmoil and grasping that you just described, which makes total sense because everybody else does that as well. (laughs) But when somebody's doing it on TV and they think they're getting away with it, I mean, that's that's part of the thing. When you're watching a public figure spinning the narrative, doing everything, I mean, you just described it perfectly, but they think they're getting away with it, which I'm sure at the time you probably thought you were doing a really good job of it as well. So what? Yes. Okay, yep. go, go ahead and answer that. Yes, but there was a well, but. Well, I mean. Show me your well, butt. Well, no, I was. And to be honest with you, I think there were uh, enough people around me at the time that so desperately wanted to believe that I was on the mend, that I was fully owning my own sin. And there were people who wanted to see me almost immediately uh, sort of, rehabilitated or reconciled or, um, you know, uh, what's the word, um, I'm looking for when churches, um, not reinstitute, but, uh, uh, whatever. I don't, it's another reword. Yeah. I'm forgetting what it is right now, but, um, you know, re- what re my wife's yelling in the background, reinstate. That's not the word I'm looking for, but that, that you get the idea. So, um, you know, and so I think there were enough people that were doing that, but here's the thing. And I was just, I was talking to a a couple today who, uh, who have a family member that is in ministry and this family member just tanked big time. Mm -hmm. And they're concerned because this family member isn't showing any real signs of remorse or repentance. And I'm trying to help them by saying, he's not going to. Not right now. 
<laughs> I mean, it's very, very rare that someone it's, I mean, it's very rare in my experience that someone who has been living a certain way for a certain period of time, all of a sudden gets caught and mm-hmm. they get exposed and their immediate response is sorrow and repentance. Right. Normally the immediate response is, well, what, I, I, it's not that bad. Or I, you know, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't. I mean, there is there's a defensiveness. There is a blame shifting posture that they embody most of the time. Uh, they're in survival mode. They're in shock. They're they're losing everything. They've just been exposed. They've just been caught. Uh, they're losing everything. They're in survival mode, and they will do whatever it takes right. to survive and to stay above water. Well, and, and, our, and, and our cultural norm is 40 days of repentance and not 40 years in a desert. And that's right. a, that's a yes. big difference. Mm-hmm. That is a huge difference. Huge. And so I, you know, the, it was for me, the way it broke down was the first six months I tried everything I could to salvage what I had lost professionally. God shut that down. Um, the, the next six months of that first year, I tried to salvage everything I had lost personally, and God shut that down. So, for instance, I tried reconciling with my ex-wife a couple of times, uh, and I just wanted my familiar back. I, I was, as I'll talk about in a second, I was undergoing a massive identity crisis because, unbeknownst to me, I had located my worth, my value, my significance in uh, the things that I did and the people that I knew and uh, the, the accomplishments that I had. And so when all of that was gone, I did not know who in the hell I was. I mean, I literally had no clue who I was apart from these things and apart from these people uh, that I had anchored my identity in. And so I was just trying in, in all of my attempts to get back everything I had lost professionally and personally, it was me scraping for whatever was familiar to me so that I would know who I was again. And God was putting me to death. In fact, at one point it was almost as if he said, listen, it's not your old life you want back. It's your old idols you want back. And I love you too much to give them to you. It's that mm. simple. You're, you're trying to stay alive, and I'm trying to put you to death, man. Um, and so after two massively failed attempts, one to resurrect my life uh, professionally and the other to resurrect my life you know, privately, uh, after those two massive, after those two attempts failed massively, uh, God finally had me where he wanted me a year later. And, um, and that's when the real darkness started to set in. That first year was not the darkest year because I was fighting for something. I was going after something. I was pursuing something. I was Mm -hmm. trying to get a job done. But when, when that year was over, uh, you know, the way my wife and I talk about it now is that when that, uh, year was over, it was almost like, it felt like the silent dark Saturday between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Like I knew what was dead and not coming back, but I could not see the light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't know what God might be bringing to me. And so, because everything felt so dark and so quiet and so lonely, uh, I was convinced that my best days were behind me that, and that, that I would never 
That you is know? so fascinating because usually, you know, you say God has me right where he wants me, which sounds like that's the turn into the glorious light. But the way you described it, although, you know, I'm not going to pick on the the uh, the tomb and the resurrection, that shouldn't be impugned in this analogy, but <laughs> it really felt like, man, those days in the belly of the fish for Jonah felt really dark. He just didn't know he was getting transported back to where he needed to be. Like, he was catching a free ride, mm-hmm. but it sure seemed dark and crappy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's, yeah. but but that's surprising to us as Christians. We're like, oh, God finally has me. And then the crap really comes. And we're like, wait, that's not, that's not how this works in the Christian movies. Is, is this no. an independent Listen. film? <laughs> you're, no, you're exactly right. And I think the rhythm as Luther, Martin Luther, who's my historical and theological hero, as he would often... I mean, he, he was like a broken record when he would talk about the rhythm of the Christian life being the rhythm of death and resurrection. I mean, that's what it's about. That's what it's always been about. And so, um, you know, when, in a sense, uh, there is no resurrection without death. And so when, when God puts you to death, he has you right where he wants you. I mean, I kept trying to resurrect my life on my own. And God's like, listen, resurrection is my business, not yours. So just sit down and shut up, man, and let me kill you so that I can bring you back to life. Um, And it took me exhausting all of my efforts and resources at resurrecting myself before I was finally so worn out, so discouraged and so depressed that I had nowhere to go and nowhere to turn. And that's when God began his deconstructing work in my life. And that was in uh, end of summer 2016. Interestingly, it was at that time, right, as both deaths had just happened, the death of me trying to pursue my, get my professional life and personal life back, um, that I remarried um, and uh, married my wife, Stacy who was someone that she didn't know me and I didn't know her before we met. I mean, she had read some of my books and had heard some of my sermons, but uh, I didn't know her. And uh, we became uh, pen pals first and then good friends and then fell in love. And we got married uh, in the end of August, 2016. And so for the first year or so we were married, um, this poor woman was living with a man who uh, was in essence going through spiritual, mental, uh, and emotional detox and rehab. Uh, and, uh, we we lived in Texas, um, for the first year, her whole family's in Texas. She's from Texas. And so we lived in Texas for that first year, which is incredibly difficult for me because I had never been far from my own children ever. Uh, my kids are all older. They're 25, 23 and 19. But, you know, at the time they were, I don't know, 20, 22 and uh, 19 and 15 or 14 or whatever it was. And, um, and so that was hard. I didn't have any work to do. Um, it was like God took me. He, it was like a forced sabbatical. He forced me into a place of quiet where I didn't have uh, anything to do. I didn't have anywhere to go. Um, it was forced solitude and anybody who has known me for any amount of time knows that forced solitude and me, uh, go together about as well as oil and water. And so, um, it was, it was God's way of bringing me, 
you know, I mean, putting me to death. And he did surround me with some great people, counselors and people who really helped along the way. My wife, first and foremost. Um, but so uh, before you, know, you, without moving on from there, because because we're getting to the end of our time. But I just spent the weekend with a lot of guys that are in parts of their journey where they are being forced to change directions, to slow down, mm -hmm. to be in that same spot you just described. And as I'm sure it is less confusing now that you've come through that, I'm just curious what you would say to them as you finally lost all your false hopes that you could control the professional, that you could control the personal, you finally found yourself getting dead and then you had to wait. What do you say to just the normal people who were saying, I don't know how to wait. I'm, I feel like I'm just going to despair, to depression. There, I haven't found the Christian uh, throw pillow or magnet that has cheered me up quite enough. So what do you say to them after having experienced all of that? To be totally honest, the only thing I know to say to people in that place are, I get it, man. It sucks. And I wish there was a way that I could fast forward you through the process so that you wouldn't have to experience that, but I can't. And there's nothing you can do either that will get you from where you are to where God wants you to be. Nothing. Honestly, I mean, I'm telling you guys right now, when I look at where I was at that time, and I'm talking, man, I have never had a, I cannot remember anyway, ever having a suicidal thought until 2015. And then from 2015 till the end of 2016, from the middle of 2015 to the end of 2016, and especially 2016, I'm telling you, I contemplated taking my life every single day I was alive, every day. Wow. Uh, and I mean, I was in a place of such despair, such discouragement, such depression. I had never experienced anything like that before. I mean, I was convinced my best days were behind me. I felt hopeless. I felt like there was no light at the end of the tunnel, that I would never be happy again, that I would never enjoy life again. I mean, I was convinced. I had my wife and a few other people telling me that wasn't true, but I didn't believe them. I was just so depressed. I couldn't believe it. I mean, the cloud coverage was total and there was no sun peering through the clouds at all. And so I, rem I, I can remember the way I felt in that season, like it was yesterday. And I can tell you, A, I don't feel that way anymore. And how I got from there to here, the only explanation I can give you is that God got me here. That's it. I mean, I, I don't, he kept me alive. He, he, he gave, you know, he gave me some people, uh, my wife and my kids primarily to remind me that I was loved, to remind me that I wasn't, you know, that I wasn't dead, uh, that I could still be useful to God, uh, that I still had a role in this world, uh, you know, those sorts of things. And they, even though I didn't believe them there, they kept reminding me and, um, I can't tell you that I was strong, that I was wise, that I pulled myself up on my bootstraps, that I just muscled forward. I can't tell you any of that stuff. I wanted to give up every single day. And mm -hmm. why I didn't, I have no idea. 
None. In part, it's a freaking it's, you, mystery to me. Well, you sa- it sounds like you've already answered that a little. When you can't control the timetable and you're stuck at a long delay at the bus stop of hope, just don't sit at the bus stop alone. Because that it is huge. sounds like yes. the only thing that kept you alive were those other yeah. voices in your life. Yep. Yeah. And even if it's just one, uh, and I know guys, I mean, I get, as you can imagine, because I'm so open about my story, um, I mean, we get letters from people all over the world. I mean, I'm sure, you know, given yeah. what you guys do, you do too. Um, but the kind of letters I get from people who are just so desperate and they have, they've screwed up their lives for whatever reason, and they are alone and they are desperate and they are hopeless. And so I, I don't, you know, I, maybe, possibly, and this is why I do what I currently do, I share my story and I talk about the radicality of God's grace and the hilarity of God's mercy and the unconditionality of God's love in and through the story of my own crashing and burning. And I talk about that stuff in part because I just want to give people who are in the place I was three, four years ago, I just want to give them a a story of hope at some level. I can't tell you how to get out from where you are. I wish that I could give you some formula on but, how to avoid but your proof this or that there, avoid that. Your, your proof that there is an out. That's what you can that's offer. Right. <laughs> that, that's all I can offer. That's, that's all I can offer is that, hey, I'm standing, I'm alive, life is different than it used to be, but I'm content and I'm filled with peace and gratitude like I was when I was 21 years old. I am now re-amazed by God's grace and just recaptured by God's outrageous mercy. Ooh. And hey, which I, I, hey, which oh. which would you pick between reinstatement and reamazement? <laughs> <laughs> if you could only have so one. I'll go with reamazement. Reamazement. All right. Um, well, how so, do people connect um, with you to hear more and the the more complete version or if they have questions or need a little extra hope? How do they connect with what you're up to? Well, uh, so a year and a half ago, my wife and I moved from the southwest coast of Florida in Fort Myers to the southeast coast of Florida, back near where I'm from. Uh, We moved to Jupiter, Florida, at the request of a group of people to start a church, uh, which I did not want to do, but God called us here, and we did it, and now we love it. Um, The church is called The Sanctuary, and it's... uh, you know, it's kind of like Festivus. It's like the Festivus for the rest of us. You know, that's, like the, that's like the sanctuary. It's like the Festivus church. <laughs> okay, that's um, awesome. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, I, I said to my wife, I said, the only way that I would be interested in doing this is if these people gave us the freedom to create the kind of church that we felt welcomed in, people like us. And so uh, I tell people all the time that our church uh, is... I liken our church more to Alcoholics Anonymous than I do a typical church uh, in terms of its culture. Um, And so we have, you know, by God's grace, have created this space in the southeast coast of Florida that we are thoroughly enjoying right now. Um, But I, people can, you know, the church website is, uh, it's just, I think it's just uh, thesanctuaryfl.org. And then my website um, is just Tullian.net and 
and people can email me. I'm, uh, you know, I see those. I see every single one of those emails. Uh, people think, well, I hope that you see these emails that mm-hmm. your team. I'm like, listen, my team is my wife and me. That's my <laughs> team these days. Like we don't have some big. Yeah, that, that is. I used to have a team. Now my team is smaller. Um, and but so yeah, we get all that stuff. We correspond with lots of people all the time. We do is we we do everything we can to respond to as many people as reach out to us, especially those who need help for whatever reason. And we try to either help them ourselves or connect them with people who can help them. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm on social media. Uh, people direct message me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram all the time too. So, I have such a unique name that all someone has to do is look up Tullian, and uh, don't read everything that the Google search directs you to. <laughs> uh, but yeah. uh, but uh, people can find me there. And awesome. we're happy to hear from people. And honestly, man, I have, I, 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 both my wife and I, she has an amazing story too, but both of us really feel called, summoned by God uh, to, to walk with people, to be with people, to encourage people when they are feeling uh, the way I felt you know, when I crashed and burned. So we're happy to hear from people. Wow. Well, thank you so much for giving up uh, this big slice of your time tonight uh, to, to uh, share your story with us and with our listeners. It's, I know that your story is going to resonate with the, Mm -hmm. with the guys uh, and the wives of the Samson society. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, listeners, well, stick with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Did you have something else to add there, Tullian? I, I, I was just going to say thank you for having me, and I have the utmost respect and admiration for what you guys do. And, Nate, I don't think you and I have ever met face-to-face, but I have heard your name for years, and I just so greatly appreciate uh, your work and your ministry, and uh, you are another voice who is uncomfortably transparent <laughs> about your own story and your own sin, that it gives guys like me the freedom to tell our own story. So thank you. Oh. Well, thank you. This has been an honor, uh, a real joy. Listeners, stick with us. We'll be back for a closing thought here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Here come the sirens. Charming and sweet Saying I got, I got, I got everything you need Hungry as lions Run for the feast The beauty of times is just a side of the beast The beauty of times is just a lie And we are back on the Pirate Monk podcast. <laughs> what's what's 
what's that intonation about? Uh, I was just trying to work a new kind of a new thing. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, I'm glad we finally got that conversation in. It's our second attempt to reach Tullian. Yes. Uh, and it was good of him to give us that time. He well, was very patient <laughs> both uh, times. Yeah, but I, I will tell you, when Tullian was talking about the way he desperately tried to spin his way out, he tried to yeah. recover his you know, equilibrium without losing too much of his dignity. We, and, and the, ah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's painful because that's, that's everybody. That's I mean, it. I, I mean, I like to think that. I've certainly yeah. tried to figure out how to yeah. take my lumps but keep the dignity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the time thing is huge. I mean, biblical time is God just thinks in decades yeah. all the time. And we are in such a rush yes. for things to get fixed, make sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, even... I. The Paul thing blows me away the most because there's this idea that's just road to Damascus and then straight to ministry and yeah. not, you know, three years in the desert, but then like another seven at home. Yeah. So yeah. It's, a, it's a good decade yeah. after yeah. his conversion. Right. And that's really hard when you think, no, I'm ready now. And yeah. God says, oh, no, like Elijah goes to King Ahab, then sits for three years, year and a half alone at a brook, and then with a... Widow and her son for a year and a half. Nobody wants to start their ministry and spend three years doing nothing. Yeah. Or 10 years making tents with mom and dad. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but those are the critical times. Yeah. Yeah. And we just have to wait, but we can't wait alone or we're going to go to despair. There's right. no way to not go to despair. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it was really nice to hear that. I agree. That was really important. Yeah. Well, I think that's a wrap for this episode. Uh, and we're going to, uh, th- obviously, we talked about this earlier in the episode about the virtual retreat that's coming up. But again, mm-hmm. as a reminder, as a reminder, it is time to sign up, boys and girls. Oh, just boys and men. Whatever. <laughs> okay. <It's, laughs> get on it. Yeah. So, yeah, check if you're already a, re- uh, a member of the Samson Society and you get the noble briefing, check your mailbox, make sure that inf- uh, you or look for the banner on the uh, main page at samsonsociety.com or samsonsociety.org and find your way to the virtual retreat because it's going to be a powerful time. Yes. And uh, remember, if you were at last weekend's retreat, you're already in there. Set yourself up. Yep. yep. All new content. Yep. Let's get it on. Just use the code that will appear in your mailbox that gets you in for free. All right. That's it. I think that's it. Until next time, then, I'm Nate. And I'm Consuela. (laughs) (laughs) And Consuela and I are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. (laughs) Arg. (laughs) 